Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday. Uh, Just a note, uh, you've heard on the news, the Premier will be speaking this afternoon talking about various uh, COVID-19 different uh, subjects. We are going to carry that news conference uh, live right here on CKNW. It's expected the Premier is going to be speaking around 1 p.m. Lots coming up on the program as well. We're going to talk a little bit more about the story of GameStop, BlackBerry, AMC stocks, and seeing a halt in trading, all because of social media. And Rob Levy is going to come back and talk about that with us just after the 1230 news. Also going to talk about vaccine rollout in this country and where things stand as far as Canadians getting the vaccine and strengthening regulations when it comes to smoking outdoors. That is something we are seeing in Port Coquitlam and the mayor of Port Coquitlam joins us in the final hour of the program. First, though, you've been hearing this in the news as well, a survey that involved 19 major political police departments right across Canada is showing some numbers that show certain crimes fell by about 18%. That was during the first eight months of the pandemic compared with the same period of time in 2019. Violent crimes, things such as assault, according to these numbers, dropped significantly. Property crime also down, but there was a 2% year-over-year increase in crimes or in allegations of uttering threats by a family member. And Stats Canada also found an increase in service calls, about 8% when we were looking at things such as wellness checks and calls for domestic disturbances and mental health. So to talk more about this, we are joined now by Angela Marie McDougall with the Battered Women's Support Services Centre. Thank you so much, Angela, for being back on the show with us. Well, thank you, Jill, for the opportunity to join you today and to speak to you on this. Uh, My guess is, unfortunately, you weren't surprised by these numbers. Uh, Not surprised at all. We've seen these, you know, the Vancouver Police Department released some statistics earlier uh, this year, or I guess at the end of last year, I should say. And, I mean, we've been monitoring this for ourselves, uh, you know, in terms of our stats and then what we see with our colleagues and, you know, in other jurisdictions within Canada. So not surprised at all. Uh, in terms of what the police have seen, which represents uh, a significantly less than what, you know, than what organizations are seeing across the province and in Canada that are serving uh, women around violence. Right, and I wanted to ask you that because when you look at the numbers, and again, these are the Statistics Canada numbers saying uh, 8% uh, the calls for wellness checks and an increase in domestic disturbances, but those are only the people that actually called. So do you have any idea what that in, that increase actually represents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there has been some studies done uh, in previous years. Generally, we don't have that information about COVID times yet. Uh, but the studies done over in, in previous years saw that around uh, between 3 and 10% of sexual assaults, for example, were reported to the police, uh, and about 10 to 25% of, what, you know, of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, was reported to the police. And so for the most part, uh, victims, uh, survivors, were not calling the police uh, as their first choice, uh, they were reaching out to a friend or a family member or to a women's organization, a transition house, a frontline service, anti-violence organization, uh, would, uh, victim service organization would be their first choice. Right, because it's hard to imagine being in a scenario, if you need help, you're the victim of a domestic assault, but you're under lockdown or you're uh, stuck it at home, you're working from home, calling and asking for help. I mean, where do you go? So, 
you know, and I we've we've been really monitoring this since March when you know when COVID hit, and and we scaled up our crisis line to twenty four seven in order to be prepared for what we knew was going to be uh, an increase in calls, and it ended up being that. I mean, we saw at different times over the first uh, few months up to four hundred and fifteen percent increases. Uh, we've plateaued now, but we are certainly way up uh, in terms of calls than than in previous years. Also, taking into consideration that we've increased our hours. Uh, so uh, what is happening is that uh, is that women are reaching out, actually, you, you know, finding ways to connect. And what really helped was getting the word out, like through through uh, you know programs like yours, and through uh, other uh, other sources of media, including social media. And that was really really important because. Uh, and also services when, you know, once everybody was able to figure out how they were going to modify their services, you know, under COVID, uh, many organizations, including us, created more ways for victims, survivors to connect. So including text, uh, email, and then, of course, crisis line service and hours increase. So everybody, you know, that I talk to has seen an increase in calls. And, and that, you know, has a lot to do with the accessibility. We've made the services more accessible uh, through the virtual environment. And then... We, uh, you know, and I, we think that's a really good thing that we've all modified our services in order to respond to this need. And, you know, I'm always just so amazed that how many women under really scary living situations with, uh, you know, with, um, you know, with boyfriends, husbands, uh, you know, intimate partners have, have managed to leave under really, really incredibly scary circumstances with a lot of isolation, have found a way out and have done that with the support of an organization. Uh, so, you know, that's something that uh, we want to continue doing and being available. And, and the police play a role in that for sure, but not every single victim wants to involve the police because um, the, you know, there's a whole, that's a whole other thing in terms of the criminal legal system. And, uh, and you know, and, and there's lots of, challenges with that, you know, uh, that we continue to try and address and redress. And we definitely need a community-based response. Uh, If I may say, if I may say another thing Mm -hmm. about the wellness checks, and we've been paying a lot of attention to wellness checks, haven't we? Uh, Yes, we have. uh, Yes. And that is, um, that is, I think, a, a part of service provision that we want to really take a really good close look at. And we've heard, of course, from law enforcement, police services themselves, that they actually don't want to be involved in that. They prefer not to have to do that. But we haven't figured that out as a society yet about how we're going to meet the needs of folks that are having, um, you know, struggles with mental health. And COVID has challenged all of our mental health. I mean, really. And so it wouldn't be a surprise that that would be an increase in calls at this time because of how difficult it's been in recent times. And so we definitely want to find more community-based responses those kinds of um, health concerns and, uh, and, you know, and, and thinking about how to, you know, thinking about that and, you know, and, and wanting to make, to make sure that everybody's safe in that and not wanting to pick the, the biggest, you know, um, tool in our, in our tool kit, um, you know, in terms of well, sometimes police can be that big, you know, tool. And we've seen certainly uh, killings of people. Uh, who have had mental health concerns, and and that, and we've seen I think two or three in you know in 2021 already in Vancouver. Uh, so uh, this is something that we have to look at, and that's something that I know we are uh, working on with a number of different folks, including police. 
All right. Trying to find community-based responses. All right. Well, I'm sure uh, we will talk about this again. Uh, Angela, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks again so much for making some time for us. I'm so grateful for this time. Thank you, Joe. Well, there's uh, been a story in the news, Cass. You've likely heard it. A Vancouver police officer suffers a broken leg after an assault that took place. And this happened at the Vancouver courthouse, the main courthouse at 800 Hornby. Well, let's find out a little bit more about what happened. Constable Tanya Visenton joins me now, Vancouver Police Department Media Relations Officer. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tell us a bit more. What happened? Yeah, so yesterday afternoon, a 53-year-old man walked into the Vancouver Law Courts at 800 Hornby Street without a mask. The on-duty sheriffs there asked him to either put on a mask or leave the building, but the man allegedly refused, and he also refused to leave the building. We had two officers uh, in the building there on an unrelated matter. I believe they were there for court. Um, And they were alerted of the incident, and they went over, and they told the man about, you know, the mask policy that's been around for the past few months now. The man was argumentative. He was physically aggressive with police. He kicked one of our officers. He attempted to reach for one of our officers' firearms. And while they were all in this scuffle, um, this suspect fell on the officer, breaking his leg. So, you know, this is something that that totally could have been avoided. It it was senseless. There was no regard uh, for the provisions set out by our provincial health officer. I mean, it's not news, right? This isn't news anymore to wear a mask. So it definitely could have uh, been avoided. So now he'll be facing charges. Uh, I understand charges have been laid at this point, and this might be be new. Uh, I think uh, we've confirmed that he has been charged with aggravated assault of a peace officer, assaulting a peace officer, and uh, attempting to disarm a peace officer, which sound like pretty serious charges. Oh, for sure. Very serious. Um, It was a very serious situation. And of course, um, anytime somebody tries to reach for one of our officer's guns, that's a a very serious situation as lives are at risk. Uh, Has this happened more often or have you heard of police officers being in situations where they've told people about the mask rules and been confronted? You know, it is something we are seeing. People are defying these rules, um, whether it be hosting large parties or, you know, just not wearing a mask in indoor spaces. And like I said before, this isn't uh, a new thing. This is something that we constantly hear our provincial officer talk about. And and this is now uh, mandated. We need to wear masks inside uh, public spaces. And if you can't do that, then you need to leave the building. Uh, So were all of the officers wearing masks? Yes, I believe they were. Uh, what does this say as far as the dangers that first responders are put in? I mean, uh, something that they would do on a regular basis or, or what would, would seem like a routine call. And then given the, given the, the heightened, uh, this heightened sense or, or what's happening because of the pandemic. Totally. Like we just like, um, you know, uh, firefighters and paramedics and nurses and doctors, we can't stay home this from the pandemic, right? Like, we, we don't have the option to work from home. So, you know, we are in that group with them or how we do put our health on the line every day. Um, you know, there's stress. There's stress that we bring home to our families, uh, that added stress of possibly contracting the disease. But, I mean, that doesn't deter us from our job. This is the job we signed up to do. We, you know, this is what we do. It's our job to... Um, you know, really instill these measures and uh, the laws. Uh, there was another story out earlier this week. One of, I think, one of the deputy chiefs uh, tweeted it out saying that in another completely unrelated scenario, an officer who, who became involved in a situation was spat on and was spat on in the face, which also has got to be hugely stressful when, for anybody that would be in that kind of scenario. 
Definitely. I mean, that is something we, we've seen well before COVID as well. But now, especially with COVID, it is, it is heightened. That is a, considered a very serious assault, whether somebody spits on an officer or just another member of the public. That whole act is, is quite disgusting, to be frank, and it, we take that very seriously. Uh, in this scenario, in the courthouse scenario, uh, I know that he's, this individual has now been charged. Uh, at that point, I know he was also issued the $230 violation ticket because he wasn't wearing a mask while inside a building. Uh, police obviously have the, the power to do that. Do you think it would be a better deterrent if police had more tools or if the fines were heftier? I mean, we work within the uh, parameters and the authorities that we are given, and we will continue to enforce this public health uh, order um, as long as it's on. And how is that, how is that, or is it taking a toll on, on officers that on top of everything else uh, that, the, that they're doing from day to day now dealing w- with something like this? Definitely. I think, um, you know, I can speak anecdotally, but I do think that our members, it's that, it's that added stress, right? It's the stress of dealing with the public constantly, dealing with people who aren't wearing masks, and then taking that home to our loved ones. I think that, I could probably speak for most members, that is foremost on the forefront of, of the stressors of the job. All right. And as for the officer, and you touched on this uh, pretty major injury that he suffered a broken leg. Um, Any idea how long this officer is going to be uh, off work? No, uh, it could be several months. All right. Constable Visentin, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. That is Constable Tanya Visentin. She is with the Vancouver Police Department, the media relations officer with the Vancouver Police Department. Thanks for being with us. Well, earlier today, stocks of GameStop, BlackBerry and AMC Entertainment Holdings all saw trading halts. And that was while we saw some continued volatility widely attributed to chatter on social media. So how did this all happen? Let's bring in Rob Levy, who is our CKNW business analyst, to break it down a bit further. Rob, thanks so much for doing this. No, no problem, Jill. Nice to be with you. Well, it seems like such a strange story. So how did this all come about? It it is a strange story. It's frankly, it's a bit of a head scratcher. And it has parallels to, you know, ones that we talked about over the last year, like companies like Hertz, these almost on their death rows, uh, nobody using them anymore, obsolete micro cap stocks. Uh, with maybe the exception of BlackBerry because of a little Canadian pride, but these aren't necessarily your mainstream run-of-the-mill stocks that everybody's trading, but they're becoming that uh, the way, as you said, it had message boards, uh, Wall Street bets, Reddit traders uh, promoting these companies and, and pouring investment dollars into them. So it is a bit of an anomaly from that perspective that you know these names that shouldn't be your, your front-of-headline stocks are becoming front-of-headline stocks. So how long did it take then for this to be happening before somebody realized, hey, something's wrong here, and I'm guessing that's what led to the halting of the trading? So we've seen that instance over the past couple of days in all these names, and it's because of the volatility that we're seeing in these markets and how quickly these stocks are going up. Uh, But GameStop is probably the most talked about one and and sort of the anomalous activity that's taking place. And, you know, what we're seeing is a company that was a brick and mortar video game store that something like seven of their last eight quarters has actually lost money. So it was a losing money business. And didn't have a lot of trading. And it started this year as one of the most shorted stocks, meaning big Wall Street uh, money managers have borrowed the stock to bet on it going down. And it's actually trading higher. What's happened in in this instance is 
people who are trading on tra- chat rooms, they call them chat room traders or retail investors that have now easier access in the last decade to trading stock markets through just using a smartphone are, are getting behind this stock and buying it because they see an opportunity for it to go exponentially higher, which we've seen. And it's created what they call in the markets a short squeeze. Uh, and the only thing that regulators can do is take a break and hit the pause button and halt trading for a minute. Uh, but as, as you said, uh, you know, it's a bit of a problem because there's a bit of a wackiness or maybe a, a lack of uh, reality from where the stock is priced at and its actual fundamental values that just leaves people sitting on the sidelines kind of scratching their head and saying, huh. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that happening, I think. Uh, does it show another issue, though, in that these ones took off so fast and stayed so high for a couple of days that those red flags went off? But is this something then, does this point to, the, to that this could be happening elsewhere, but if you keep it just below that level of detection, you can continue doing that? Well, it's it certainly, these stocks have been targeted for a reason. And it gets very technical, but as one of the examples, this GameStop, because it was so shorted, uh, what these players, these small-time retail investors that have amassed together to create buyers for this stock, have created, in essence, what they call a short squeeze. So when they start buying the stock and bidding up the stock, and they're using leverage plays in which to do that, buying option contracts, which you know allows them to take on a bigger position, but also at significantly higher risk. Uh, then creates buying for the stock and, and then forces these people who had shorted the stock out of their position. Uh, so, you know, it's very targeted in terms of the companies that they're approaching. Another one being, being BlackBerry uh, for a Canadian stock that they've gone after. And, and it, it's interesting because even BlackBerry has come out with a press release. And there's been some very positive stories around BlackBerry ever since they got out of the, the smartphone and hardware business, like the proprietary technologies and what they're doing. They've announced partnerships with Amazon or even a Chinese company Baidu to do smart driving in cars. Uh, but as they even said, there's nothing, there's nothing material that they've released in terms of headlines that should cause this significant change in their share price, which has gone from about 8 or $9 before the new year to about $30, $2 a share today. So is anything about this illegal? That's the debate that's taking place right now. Regulators might see if something's going on that's similar to maybe a pump and dump scheme because you've got people on these chat rooms and maybe this is where regulation will come from but nothing clear-cut yet in terms of what they're doing is it illegal but using these chat rooms to maybe pump up stocks get momentum into the trade and then people to profit for it we've seen in many instances in the past where you know a pump and dump is illegal and this kind of mirrors it in a new age different kind of way and it's but it's in in some senses it's sort of like the main street investor versus the wall street investor and a a shift of power dynamics that's also taking place here so you know to have a clear-cut answer to that i think is is what's being debated here it's almost uh more so because who knows how long this party is going to last if it goes on for another week or if it goes on for another couple months but but the risk that's taking place here is almost the bigger phenomenon because these, these young sort of retail investors, or you assume they're young retail investors, but individual investors that are throwing so much money behind these companies that should be fundamentally worth significantly less than what they're trading for today. And would, that, would you call that a day trader or is it a totally different thing? No, that's, that's exactly what it is. And th- this phenomenon, it, it popped up 
uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and people related it to the idea that there was no sports betting going on. So where was a place to stay at home and gamble uh, other than the stock market? So you saw a lot of entry into the stock market uh, in the U.S. There's many more of them than the opportunities in Canada, but it's trading accounts like Robinhood or E-Trade and Ameritrade where it's easy to trade from your smartphone and, you know, pick and buy stocks. And, and that's exactly what they are. People who are, you know, working from home, find themselves with more more time on their hands and maybe addicted to a new way of, of gambling and less uh, what it used to be, which was, you know, picking good companies and saving and investing for the long term and retirement. <laughs> well, it's definitely uh, interesting to watch and see how this uh, is unfolding. Rob, thank you so much for joining us uh, to break it down. Appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem, Jill. Nice to chat with you. Well, there have been a lot of questions about vaccine rollout in this country. We know for this week we are not getting any more doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. But we continue to hear from the Prime Minister. All Canadians who want a vaccine will have one by the end of September. My next guest isn't 100% sure of that. Amir Adaran is a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa and now joins me on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, a lot of people have been following along with what's happening with vaccine rollout. Uh, We know uh, in Canada right now we are not receiving any of the Pfizer-BioNTech doses. What are your thoughts as far as how Canada secured contracts and where we are right now? Canada is in a very great amount of danger and trouble, um, to be completely frank about it, because we do not have large quantities of vaccines arriving anytime soon. Um, Between now and the end of March, this country is getting only 6 million doses in total. And to put that in context, that's about as many doses as the United States rolls out to its people every four days. So we're we're very far behind. Um, There's nothing that can be done quickly to change this. This is a result of very serious mistakes that were made by the government um, when it negotiated for vaccines last year, it simply left it too late. It simply delayed negotiating and signing deals with vaccine suppliers, in some cases months later than other countries did. And everyone knows how that works. If you are placing your order late, you're also going to be served late. I'm afraid that's the reality, and it unfortunately coincides with what is certainly going to be a third wave of the pandemic very likely more severe than the second wave that we've just experienced. And when you talk about leaving the negotiations too late, do you think there was also an issue with the deals look different? There's a reason why some countries are first in line and are getting their shipments and not seeing as much of, if any, uh, stoppage to their shipments. Do you think there was also an issue in what deal was reached and what Canada signed on to? Well, The contracts have never been made public, whether in Canada or in most other countries. Brazil is the exception there, which has made them public. So it's hard to compare contract to contract. It's basically impossible. But what we do know is that the countries that are doing best in vaccination, and I'll I'll take just three, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Israel, they each are excelling because they have some advantage that Canada does not. For the United States, They manufacture vaccines in their own country, and the U.S. government poured billions of dollars into developing some of the vaccines. The Moderna vaccine 
simply would not exist without U.S. government financing for the research and development. We didn't do that. We, we chose as a country not to, to play that game. In the United Kingdom, again, they manufacture vaccines locally, and they also were very quick to sign agreements with suppliers. We were not quick. That hurts us. Israel is getting preferential treatment because Israel very, very cleverly entered into a deal where it would assist Pfizer uh, with data on the performance of the vaccine. So Pfizer is supplying the vaccine, but they're also getting useful scientific research back. We didn't place that on the table either. We have basically very little to offer except money. And, and if that's all you've got to offer, you're not going to be served first. The companies are not and I think this is ethically correct of them, they're not playing a game of we will sell to whoever the, offers the biggest wad of cash. Simply waving money around will not put you at the front of the line. And when you talk about the investments made in reaching and helping Moderna have the vaccine in such a short time period, there's been a lot of talk of that recently as well from a Canadian company saying we reached out to the federal government. We said if you helped us, we would be able to manufacture. We could research and do that here and got no response. You know, that that company is Providence Therapeutics. I don't buy that story. Um I really don't buy that story because this was a company that has really a short history in the vaccine field. It's never made a vaccine before. And it was not likely to be the case that any startup company could deliver a vaccine quickly through clinical trials. Clinical trials are just horribly complex bits of science to organize. There's a reason that Pfizer did well at it, the world's biggest pharmaceutical company. I don't think that there is any hope for that product from Providence, the Canadian, the so-called made in Canada vaccine, getting through clinical trials any time this year. The company itself, I believe, said they're looking at next year. That's not going to be a problem solver for us. What about the relationship between Canada and uh, CanSino Biologics in China? Because the Prime Minister, the federal government, has been criticized for going that route and now not really seeing any huge benefit or any benefit from choosing to partner up with a Chinese company. I was critical of that deal the the minute it was made. Um, It struck me as bizarre it struck me as completely doomed to failure, and so it was for several reasons. One, when Justin Trudeau announced it in May last year, and he said that a Chinese company, an upstart company, again, with no products, no history ever in vaccine, was going to be Canada's savior on this, this seemed extremely unlikely. Um, as well, part of the deal was that the company was going to do clinical trials on its vaccine in Canada in Halifax. There's a little problem with that. Everyone knows Halifax has virtually no COVID. How do you do a COVID vaccine clinical trial where there's no COVID? So scientifically, this was a, was a foolish, foolish enterprise to begin with. And yet the prime minister backed it. Um, it fell apart, we've learned since, within days, because the Chinese government essentially blocked the deal and would not allow Kim Sino to send Uh, material that they needed to send to Halifax for the research to proceed, it's beyond disappointing that 
months were wasted on such a barren exercise with essentially a, a Chinese company taking its baby steps while the government was tuned out of major companies like Pfizer, like AstraZeneca, it did have the wherewithal to deliver a vaccine quickly. They only got onto that channel much later, and we are paying brutally for it. It does seem to, and I mean, trying to make sense of that story and reading about the back and forth of MPs asking questions about this, I was at a loss to try and figure out what the thought process might have been in signing on with that Chinese manufacturer, like you said, and instead of going with those that are tried and true. It was foolish. I said it was foolish at the time. I don't know if you ever saw the article I wrote in McLean's last year in August saying that Canada was on a disastrous course with vaccines, and, and I predicted then we would be months later than other countries in getting vaccinated, and here you are. These mistakes were obvious, not just CanSino, but the lateness to negotiate with Pfizer and others um, for a supply. That was, that was catastrophically bad. The secrecy of the government's uh, vaccine task force for, for several months, we didn't even know who the members were. And even to this day, the minutes of their meetings or their recommendations have never been publicly released. It's all been happening behind closed doors. And obviously, that task force has made some terrible decisions um, to lead us to where we are. I'm afraid this is one of those cases where not just one thing went wrong, but many things went wrong. And now Canada is in desperate, desperate trouble because of that. And there is really no quick way out. Um, Remember that at the next election, please, because, you know, pandemics will happen again and again. And to get through them, you need a government that's scientifically competent. And, 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 you know, it hurts me to say this, but as somebody who was born American and studied in the United States, studied in the, the UK at Oxford, worked in the pharmaceutical industry in Switzerland, but now, you know, of course, has a home in Canada. Of the countries I've named, Canada is by far the scientifically most backwards. And that is the result of decisions made by conservatives and liberals alike that has gutted um, the ability of government to really move sensibly in the face of scientific challenges. And now look what it's costing us. Uh, just before I let you go, I, I do remember the article uh, and reading the article that you wrote in McLean's. The Prime Minister is still repeating that every Canadian who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by the end of September of this year. Do you think that's possible? It would require a lot of luck. The only way that's possible is if there is no supply disruption again, such as there is right now with Pfizer. You know, As you know, Canada is getting no Pfizer vaccines this week and very much less than what was expected in coming weeks. You'd have to have no supply disruptions of that kind again. You'd have to have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine pass through clinical trials successfully. We'll get a result on that, I hope, within days. You'd have to get some of the AstraZeneca supply, which right now is being fought over between Britain and the European Union very heatedly perhaps making it such that there's none for Canada. If all of those things turn right, yes, then perhaps Canadians will get vaccinated by the end of, of, you know, the summer, early fall. But I don't count on those things going right. And even if they do, 
we will be behind very, very many other places. The United States expects to finish vaccinating the general population in August. That is the same time that Ottawa, where I live and Justin Trudeau lives, will be starting general vaccination. So even on that timeline that that the Prime Minister has promised, it places us very, very late relative to other places. All right, uh, Amir Adaran, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the time with you. Thank you for having me.